Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this Institute for Government event, AI Governing the Ungovernable, question mark, supported by the Institute for People-Centred AI at the University of Surrey. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government. You may also see me pop up at Connected by Data and the Open Data Institute. And it's wonderful to welcome so many of you to this packed room this morning to talk all things artificial intelligence. Some housekeeping before we get going. Uh, this event is on the record. It is being recorded and it will appear on the IFG website. Uh, some of uh, the IFG staff will be taking some photos for social media and for the IFG website. If you would like to get involved on social media, if any of you are still on Twitter or X, uh, then we will be live tweeting from at IFG events using the hashtag IFGCon23 as well as hashtag CPC23. You can also follow at Institute for Government. Um, we've got lots of events here at Party Conference. You should have one of these uh, on your seats uh, so you can find out much more about all of the IFG events there. So, artificial intelligence governing the ungovernable. Uh, artificial intelligence, sometimes defined as the ability of machines and software to perform tasks normally performed by humans. I think it'd be fair to say it's been everywhere recently in political discourse. It's probably been the most used abbreviation apart from HS2. Um, we've had the government coming out with a white paper on AI regulation. We've had um, We've had the Frontier Model Task Force, there's the AI Safety Summit, lots of academic and business funding. We've got select committees looking to AI governance, AI and weapon systems, large language models, uh, which power things like ChatGPT. Um, some of you may well have used that. Hundreds of millions of people have had AI in the palm of their hands. There are lots of geopolitical discussions. There are open letters about stopping AI development. Lots of researchers saying, actually, there's a lot of AI in the public sector already, and we should concentrate on that. Lots of activity. Um, politics has really woken up in the last uh, few months to the possibilities and potential pitfalls of AI and the fact that the human decisions that we make can shape the future of machines. So today we're going to be discussing various questions related to all of that. How should government approach the development and regulation of AI? How can we make the most of the opportunities while mitigating the risks now and in the future? And how do we discern the signal from the noise when it comes to artificial intelligence? Luckily, I'm joined by a fantastic panel to help answer some of those questions and no doubt more. Uh, first of all, we'll be hearing from Paul Scully. Uh, he's the Minister for Tech and the Digital Economy and has been since the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology was created back in February 2023. Uh, first elected MP for Sutton and Cheam in 2015. Uh, he's former Minister at the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sports, levelling up in housing communities and business, energy and industrial strategy, as well as being Minister for London. We'll then move on to Hitan Shah. Hitan is the Chief Executive at the British Academy, the UK's National Academy for the Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, he's previously the Chief Exec of the Royal Statistical Society, chairs Our World in Data, an excellent website if you're not familiar with it, and is a visiting professor at the King's uh, College London Policy Institute, fellow at Birkbeck and on the boards of various other organisations doing interesting things with data, such as the Bennett Institute. Uh, we'll then hear from Anna Thomas. She is the co-founder and founding director of the Institute for the Future of Work. Uh, they explore the impact of technology on work and our working lives. She's previously a barrister specialising in equality and labour law, uh, and as well as establishing uh, IFO, uh, has also established the Future of Work Commission, the All-Party Parliamentary Group on the Future of Work, and uh, the Pissaridis Review into Work and Wellbeing. 
Uh, finally, we'll hear from Andrew Rogoyski. He is the Director of Innovation and Partnerships at the Institute for People-Centred AI at the University of Surrey. Um, that centre brings together Surrey's AI-related expertise uh, with lots of domain expertise on everything from health to engineering to arts and the social sciences as well. Uh, Andrew has been uh, 30 years in industry uh, government and academia, starting as a physicist, then moving to Logica in one of the earlier AI booms, ESIS, Kinetic, Cabinet Office, CGI, um, and has also now joined uh, the University of Surrey's People-Centred AI Institute. And you can see that they have a new report out as well, a short briefing paper, which you can also find on your seats. Uh, the way the event will run is that I'll ask each of our panellists to speak for around five minutes. Depending on time, we may then have a quick discussion on the panel, but we will open it up quite quickly uh, to all of you in the audience for questions as well, because I'm sure there are lots of things that you want to share and want to ask as well. So AI governing the uh, ungovernable, I'll hand over to Paul. Thank you very much, Gavin. Really good to, uh, to that you've brought us all together. There's already quite a chatter about uh, AI uh, through through conference, through some of the event, other events that I've been to. And I was at Tech Week, uh, London Tech Week earlier on this year, and some people were saying it's London Tech Week, it's not London AI Week, So, uh, but nonetheless, it is really at the, um, you know something we're grasping. It's not just politics, politicians, it's the technologists themselves, it's businesses themselves, just because AI has been around for decades. It's not, it really is not a new thing, but it's just the proliferation of, uh, through large language models, obviously headlined by ChatGPT that really grasped people's imaginations uh, as people start to use it and people start to look at um, the benefits and the risks. And it's really important that we get both of those right, um, that we actually talk a lot about the benefits of AI whilst understanding and dealing with and mitigating those risks. But what you know, what can AI do for us? Well, first of all, you know, talked about ChatGPT, Bard, those kind of things. They are already allowing businesses and small businesses and, and young people to be able to streamline their, their business lives. Uh, my other half is a prep school head teacher, uh, and she was uh, at the beginning of term uh, on the Sunday before she was doing, when she was preparing her assembly for the next day, went and checked GPT, so write me out a, a, a suitable prayer for seven-year-olds. And about three or four paragraphs of prayer came out. So basically, she could have done that herself, but what takes sort of 20 minutes, half an hour, now takes her five minutes. Uh, it's those kind of great things in just a normal everyday life. And obviously, that then does add pressures around the future of work, which we need to explore. But then if you look at what it's doing, how transformative it is for tackling climate change, tackling health diagnoses, and uh, where it can diagnose, uh, so some forms of AI can diagnose cancers better than humans can. So there's some massive benefits there. But as well as the utopia, there is a dystopia. Um, I Again, I was making a speech when I was saying exactly this, about you talk about the benefits, but uh, I talked about the fact about the risks when you know we're all gonna die from a Terminator-style robot that's, uh, gonna, that's, that's gonna, uh, if you believe some of the headlines. The BBC covered that speech very accurately in its narrative. They used the Terminator-style robot as the image, so that obviously didn't do any favors in terms of trying to turn the, uh, turn that um, uh, around. Because if we're going to grasp the opportunities, we do have to make sure that we can do it in a safe way, in a trusted way. Uh, and this is not just any one government department. It's not even any one country. Actually, we need an international response to this. Uh, and there's a number of strands of work that are going on around the world, whether it's in the G7, the Hiroshima, uh, Hiroshima uh, Accord, whether it's um, the Japan are leading on, whether it's our 
AI Safety Summit um, on the uh, 1st and 2nd of November in Bletchley Park, whether it's the work that OECD, the Council of Europe doing, but we've got to make sure that we're not duplicating effort. Um, that we're actually, the strands are each being additive rather than duplicative. Uh, and so our, our our summit is bringing together leading technology companies as well as leaders to really understand those risks, to be able to use the learning that we've got from our frontier task force, modern task force uh, uh, that Gavin's talking about, led by Ian Hogarth, who's um, you know a very well-known AI specialist in this, really um, pushing those, th those those thought process to the extreme, so that we can then come up with uh, our our response. The AI white paper that Gavin talked about earlier on um, really is, I believe, a flexible, proportionate approach when we're looking at regulating outcomes rather than technologies. Because anything about tech, if you just have a static bit of paper, it's going to be out of date within months. Um, and so here it's really important that we roll with AI as it develops, as we understand it more. And so that, that approach where we're at the moment, we are using the existing regulators and empowering them to, to understand how we, you know, how they can regulate their particular sectors. Um, but again, that's something that's that's in development, and we'll we'll see where we go uh, from 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 there on in. But it's looking at the principles of being contestable, being transparent, being open. Um, that uh, that that really do uh, will have that um, important impact. I mean, you talked about the letter the same day we released the AI white paper. That the letter came out from Elon Musk and a, and a lot of others. There was a bit of dubious about exactly who was on that list because of some of them on the list said they never signed it. So, and Elon Musk then went and opened an AI company himself two weeks later. So there was a little bit of commercial impact, I, th I think, there as well. Um, but we will see what happens with that AI Safety Summit because I think, as I say, why, why we're doing it in the UK, it's not because we've got an ego, it's because we've got the third biggest AI sector in the, in the world after America and China. Um, and we've got the Ada Lovelace Institute, we've got the Alan Turing Institute, Bletchley Park, as I say. We've got the, the loads of academia, loads of businesses, and that sort of flexible sense, as I say, that I think will have a really interesting result at the end of those two days but i'll leave it there because i'm going to be really interested to hear what you say what you think we should be doing and how you if any of you are using ai by the way if you are using ai especially in your businesses i'd love to know because it's incumbent on us not just to tackle these big big issues and answer the question are we can we govern the ungovernable but when i'm talking about the benefits i want to make sure that small businesses as well as big businesses can use ai so if you are using ai whether it's a large language model or whatever, then that will be really interesting for me to take away so I can spread that word amongst other businesses. The more digital take up we get, the more people understand it, the better we, the, the better we are at doing it, which actually leaves me my final, final point about skills, which actually help us get a better product. We have a thing called the AI skills conversion course, which is effectively trying to bring people into the sector um, that haven't got a STEM background, haven't got a computer science background. And what that does, that doesn't just fill in the fill the skills gap that we have in AI, but it also gets increases our diversity. And when I say diversity, I don't just mean tick box diversity, I mean diversity of thinking. If we're gonna oh, if we're gonna have this right, the let's get it right at the development of AI. So let's work out in the development of AI, bring in people that have got a wider base than just a narrow, um, com comparatively narrow computer science coding background. And that, I think, 
in itself will be a, an interesting guardrail. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, we'll move next to Hitam. Great, thank you. Um, I, I think one of the key problems is that policymakers still think of AI as magic. Uh, <laughs> and so, you, you know, your brain kind of falls out as soon as someone says the yeah. word machine learning, right? Yeah. And you kind of go, oh, okay, this is very exciting. We'll just let you do what you want. And I think policymakers need to bring the same kind of critical mindset to AI as everything else. And we've got to remember, uh, AI is not just large language models mm. or generative AI, and not all of generative AI is ChatGPT. So let's not just think about policymaking just because you've used ChatGPT and got scared or got excited or whatever. Um, I think this whole conversation around existential risk, in my view, is overblown. Uh, I mean, if take ChatGPT, which is essentially predictive text on speed, it doesn't have a mind, right? Uh, it's not out to kill us, as it were. So, uh, uh, and it is, I think, distracting us a little bit from that kind of bucket of issues that are now quite well known around bias, around privacy, around liability, uh, misinformation, etc. But we're not necessarily doing enough right now to, to, to focus on those. So, so that to me is, uh, I think, where we've got, to, we've got to put a bit more energy. I totally agree that the, the white paper is excellent. Uh, and I think slightly overlooked again, in a way, number 10 has got so worried about the existential risk thing. There hasn't been a lot of conversation about the white paper. The white paper is basically saying, here are the principles, safety, security, accountability, fairness, etc. You can look them up. Let's apply them on a sector by sector basis. That's got to be right. The problems in insurance are going to be different to the problems in health, which are going to be different to the problems in finance or uh, transport. So, uh, you know, let's empower each regulator to really think through what that means for their sector. The worry for me is not the policy, and this is often the case in the UK, is are we really going to operationalise it? Mm. We've seen actually budgets of regulators have been dropping over years. Look at the health and safety executive. We've seen all sorts of regulatory failures. You think of Grenfell, for example. Do we really have the faith that actually we're going to see this through? I don't, and you know, do we have the faith that we've brought the skills in to the regulators to actually help them understand what AI means in their sector? But I do think that the, the kind of sectoral approach is the right one and actually different to the way that kind of Europe uh, has, has started off thinking about this from, from their side. But uh, as you said, Paul, this is going to keep changing. The tech is going to keep changing. So it's not like we're going to have one set and then we're done. Therefore, we're going to continuously going to need to bring researchers in and bring the public in. And we don't talk, talk about that enough. You know, how do we get the public voice heard? Biometrics is a good example where, you know, what do any of us really think? We need to understand the technology and then say, where, where are the lines that we want drawn? And this is not a party political matter. This cuts well across party political lines, I think. Sometimes you hear about the alignment problem, which is, you know, is AI really going to do things which are in our uh, good? And again, I think that this is about uh, a kind of misapprehension that AI has a mind of its own. The real alignment problem, from my perspective, is are the tech companies going to be doing the things that are valuable for the public, as it were? And there's no really easy solution to kind of how you do that alignment, because uh, there's this competition policy angle. Do you break things up? but then you lose actually the value of the technology. So that's a no-go, as it were. There's been a bit of chatter about should the UK government set up its own AI company? You know, I mean, just no way. I mean, have you seen the states? Don't go there. Uh, so I suppose the most plausible kind of notion is thinking of AI and some of its functions in the kind of, as a utility, where it's in the sort of public interest space. How, how do we... But even with utilities, you look at kind of off-what at the moment and sewage, you know, we, there is no perfect policy solution here, but we've got to keep iterating those things. And AI is not just about AI policy. In fact, all the, the, 
because it's so cross-cutting, you've got to be thinking about data policy, which is the unloved, unsexy cousin of AI policy. And actually, it's if you can improve data sharing, mm. if you can improve data accessibility, all those things will help uh, empower AI. R and D policy: if we want the talent here, if we're you know we're doing well, but if you looked at trying to get a visa uh, to come as a kind of you know talented person, that those prices have just risen. We've just put the NHS surcharge onto people, so it's getting harder and harder to get people to come here. Uh, on tech policy, I think we've got to focus as much on adoption. At the moment, the creation of Department of Science is great, uh, but there's a slight focus on the shiny and the new, whereas actually one in five uh, people in households of under 25K income have never used the internet. Uh, one in four businesses have not adopted basic ICT practices. So how are we going to get them? And the kind of long tail of poor productivity in this country is we've got to be thinking about adoption as much as uh, we think about uh, uh, new tech. And then finally, uh, I suppose transparency, I think, is really hard in AI. Uh, I would focus on accountability rather than transparency. Uh, and I think if you think what could go wrong, I would just say post office, which wasn't even AI, but the horizon system, yeah. kind of computers, etc. You know, that was a failure of governance as much as it was about technology. And that's why we've got to see the two together. So, you know, I suppose my view is at the end of the day, the future is not set. We can control what the future looks like collectively. There's a kind of dystopian vision, which is, you know, uh, wealth, but in fewer hands, low quality work, a kind of surveillance society, uh, tech used against the public interest through kind of discriminatory pricing, et cetera, et cetera. Or a kind of opposite where the public feels like, yes, we're in control. Uh, we know where this is going and this is helping us uh, with our end. So uh, I think we can collaborate to kind of create the future we want and we should. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Hitam. Um, and just to say, at the Institute for Government, we've always thought data policy was sexy as well. <laughs> um, we've heard a bit already about the impact that AI could be having on the future of work, which is a perfect moment to hand over to Anna. Um, thank you very much, um, Gavin. Um, and thank you very much for having me um, on this fantastic panel. Um, I'll focus my contributions, um, as you've um, suggested, Gavin, on um, the implications of governance uh, of AI at work. So pulling out those features and lessons, if you like, or insights that make it particularly pertinent to the debate that we're having at the moment um, with the AI Summit and the Fringe as well coming up. Um, where I suppose work is a, a key everyday interface, people are experiencing the impacts of AI and automation technologies um, and significant impacts um, on a daily basis. Um, and in a sense, it is the thread um, that connects our everyday experience with our communities, um, our firms, our jobs, um, and uh, society and the economy as a whole. Um, so as the minister has said, we have huge strengths in innovation um, in AI um, uh, um, and in research too, but we also in the UK have great strengths in law and governance. Um, uh, particularly in the history of regulation of tech um, and civil society in that we have a very uh, rich civil society um, in the UK, um, which is perhaps important where the next frontier of responsible artificial intelligence debate um, is really engaging more widely um, in civil society, which is something that we're only beginning to touch at the moment. Um, so uh, so in, addition, in addition to those features, uh, the UK has some other advantages that we have identified principles as our approach to regulation, which is very, very important and something we at the Institute have been 
um, uh, rooting for since 2020 in the CDI bias review. Um, that's not to say we were terribly clever about it, but it's just very easy if you focus sharply on one area and think mm. about the impacts um, at, at work. Um, uh, and, uh, and of course, important when we're looking now to expand the remit um, of the responsible AI debate and indeed of the summit beyond thinking only about existential risk um, and security to, uh, to thinking about automation and other everyday risks. Um, we also have in the UK some fantastic responsible AI programmes. Um, uh, most recently, the, re the responsible AI programme of more than 30 billion, which has set us up for operationalising our approach and the and the principles um, uh, in a fantastic way. There are, however, a number of factors if you think about the workplace impacts, which point we would suggest to a to a bolder approach in terms of operationalising those principles in the UK approach at this moment in time. Um, uh, and we hope that that w is worthy of further exploration in the AI summit coming up. First of all, thinking about research and what we actually know about real impacts now, because there are quite a lot of things that we don't know or we won't know entirely um, emerging impacts things like so uh, has some health and psychosocial uh, uh, impacts um, things that we can't preempt we know there will be some things that we can't anticipate uh, given the uh, the pace at which there are new applications um, uh, uh, every day in the workplace place as well as as well as everywhere else now we know of course the image and the web been coming together last week um, will invite all sorts of uh, new applications of that even where we've known large language models are coming forever um, so in terms of automation thinking about automation um, we know as well we've got to think way beyond displacement and job lost and we've identified six main frontiers of automation types of automation um, and we've done that by recognising that automation is a process of human decisions um, about the design, development and deployment of the artificial intelligence. So whipping through those, in addition to displacement, we have augmentation of human skills and abilities, which can be both high and can be low. We have intensification um, of the tasks and, uh, and acts carried out by uh, individuals in the workplace. We have telepresence and transference, which are what happens immediately, and then the secondary impacts um, as more and more things are carried out uh, remotely. Um, we have matching, different types of matching ability, uh, both internally and with, uh, within firms and between terms. And we have uh, and we have uh, telepresence uh, and transference too. Um, and I recommend uh, a paper that we've done called Reframing Automation if you want to read more about those. So our research suggests that they, all of these things have potentially very positive benefits on, all, on dimensions of work uh, using our framework, the Good Work Charter, but they don't. That doesn't necessarily happen. So they can be positive and they can be negative depending on what you do. Um, and we've got a, a fantastic firm, firm level survey, which we hope takes this debate significantly further. Um, carried out with Warwick Business School, uh, led by Professor James Hayton as part of the Pisa Readers Review, which tells us some of what we do know, affirms empirically some of what we do know, and adds new features. So we know now that nearly 80% of firms um, are using AI and automation technologies uh, to undertake both physical and cognitive tests. That's the new tasks, that's the new element. We know that small companies and SMEs are using it to automate cognitive tasks at the same rate as physical ones. That's a significant uh, step, which is uh, worthy, I think, of particular consideration. We know that the net impact is good as the minister said, in terms of both job creation and skills, which is fantastic. But we also know if you go underneath that and you unpick that, uh, that results are variable and why that can be variable. 
and particular factors that are emerging in our research um, are that innovation readiness alter the relationship between adoption and work outcomes um, and also approaches um, uh, for example in whoops um, in human resource management uh, uh, alter the uh, you know mediate and perceptions mediate uh, good work outcomes so investment in in workers and high involvement practice tend to be associated with positive work outcomes on a range of measures and that's very important because in a sense it gives us a business case for operationalizing the uk's uh, the UK's principles. I think I'm going to have to speed up. But in addition to the other factors that tend to suggest that we could move to a bold approach, we have gaps in legislative protection. So it's absolutely right that we don't know exactly how they fit together. And the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum is a, is a fantastic um, uh, medium for exploring this further. Um, and there will undoubtedly be needed to be further guidance and cases as we emerge, but that will take a very long time. Um, but we do know some features of our legislation that aren't working and do leave exposures. They tend to be ex post facto. They tend to rely on individuals proving the harm after it's done. They don't always capture relational or group impacts and they don't make particular allowances for information symmetries, which we're all experiencing very sharply, but there are ways to deal with this. Um, uh, we also have uncertainty of businesses. There's a, there, there is a sort of general uh, demand, given the pace of things, both within businesses of different sorts and the public, for slightly more clarity about that. Um, and all of that leads me to say that we should, in the UK, take that leading role and operationalise the principles in the way we do best in the UK. So we identify our goals and our principles. We identify some uh, 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 you know, overarching obligations basically to identify risks and opportunities as much as uh, as much as you can in advance and do what you can to take account of those um, um, and you build that up over time um, and in the workplace you had specific uh, protections in areas that you know are particularly important um, and are not currently uh, covered uh, with enough clarity uh, in legislation as it is and then we can move to a situation of good uh, automation that serves the public interest um, and will benefit everybody and move to augmenting human capabilities and skills uh, and not replacing them. Brilliant. Thank you, Anna. Uh, we go now to Andrew. Thanks, Kevin. <clears throat> it really has been an extraordinary year in AI, but as Paul pointed out at the beginning, AI has been a, a subject we've studied for many, many years. Uh, our own university has been uh, at the forefront of AI for nearly 40 years um, and uh, with perhaps suspicious prescience, we set up our new AI Institute, the Surrey Institute for People-Centered AI, uh, two years ago, um, really with a view to taking AI across the university, across all the subjects, um, and really focusing on the benefit of AI for people. Um, and that's very much what informs our research and our teaching. Um, and to that end, we put together some thoughts, some policymakers. If you said to me uh, a year ago that I'd be speaking at the two major party conferences, I would have... Uh, raised an eyebrow if not downright laughed at you um, but it just shows how much can change in a very small space of time so I'm just going to whisk through some of the ideas that we've put through which build I think on several of the things that uh, my, my panel have said um, the first is the sovereign influence of AI I think is is a is a real issue um, how much real control do we have over the major AI implementations um, and how that is used in this country and I think that's something that we need to look at. We need to be very clear-eyed in the same sense that um, we've had very little sovereign control over the social media. 
uh, over the last 20 years and the impact that that has had on mental health crises, on uh, destabilizing political debate and so on. We don't want to make the same mistakes again. And we're not alone in thinking that the US Senate is currently using that as a very strong uh, theme of their discussion. Um, second is recognizing the pace and scale of development and realizing that actually um, academic institutions are being hugely outpaced by what is happening at, uh, in, in industry. Billions are being spent, invested in um, on a weekly basis. You know, you take an example like uh, Mistral AI, a company that formed what, three months ago, raised 100 million in, in backing four weeks after they incorporated extraordinary levels of FIBRA um, activity pushing into AI. Fantastic for the sector, but um, you know, really how much control do we have over that? The third is, is I, I think, uh, an appeal from the university. We need to recognize that we need to educate and upskill. Um, and I think recognizing the, the point that was already made. Um, and and realize, bring people into understanding of what AI is, what it can, what it can't do, uh, what it should and shouldn't be used, understanding of bias, ethics, um, and appropriate use of AI. So that that's built into the DNA of our future AI-enabled workforce. Uh, rather than let it happen for them. The fourth, uh, fourth point is kind of the flip of that, which is recognizing that the education, ex education sector itself is probably going to be one of the most impacted by uh, the, the current wave of generative AI. Um, it's creeping into our lessons, our students are using AI. Um, you know, they're very early adopters. Um, and that process is currently unguided. Um, University schools are putting forward policies, they're putting forward ideas on how you should and shouldn't use AI. But in the meantime, this fire hose of new developments is coming out and our students are just adopting it and using it. And that's not UK controlled, it's not UK sourced, um, with the potential to think about, you know, that our students become better informed by ChatGPT, by Claude, by Llama and other uh, models than they do by their own uh, UK uh, teaching professionals, you know, with an impact on things like social norms and so on. We need to be aware of that and understand how that, that's going to impact. Then the future of work, you know, what does a career look like? We've been having this discussion for many years, but suddenly we've got careers that are fizzling out, disappearing overnight. Uh, and the thing that's really changed is the impact on the creative sector, where people are script writers, uh, story writers, graphic designers and so on are suddenly finding themselves being disrupted by uh, the advent of this uh, technology. And we need to respond to that in a sensible fashion. Um, the fifth is, uh, I think, actually developing a positive narrative to AI. Uh, a lot of the public narrative is about killer robots and uh, you know putting people out of jobs. And yes, that's a concern, and we need to retain that. Um, and, and that actually goes back into popular culture. You know, it's, it's what, over 50 years since Stanley Kubrick's uh, Hell 9001 in, in 2001. Um, you know, first the, the chatbot that tried to kill the astronauts. You know, we've, we've known about that problem for a long time, uh, and yet now it's here and we're having to deal with it. Um, so some, some intelligent thinking about how to tell the story about what AI can and can't do, again, linking back to education. And I think the final point um, of, of the issues that we need to look at is this issue of accountability, and uh, link back to the early example of social media. but. We need to make the organizations and the individuals who are pushing these products into our society accountable for what uh, they're pushing. And I think, you know, in the same way as we make the nuclear industry accountable for the technologies that they put out, there's very stringent controls. 
we need to think about um, the, the way that we do that. We need to do that on an international basis. So I welcome the, the Bletchley Park um, intervention. Um, but that's something that uh, we, we need to recognize that, that our leverage is probably limited uh, at the moment. Uh, and so we put forward some recommendations at the end of this paper, which basically fall into three parts. There's, uh, there's one around political leadership. So um, my own recollection of what we did um, in government, um, uh, the government around cybersecurity over 10 years ago, we had the National Cybersecurity Programme, which was a cross-departmental influx of funding that drove thinking about um, how we reacted to digital security. And I think some sort of initiative along those lines is needed with um, centralised funding and impact on uh, government departments, because this cuts across all government departments, from education to transport and so forth, uh, to defence and so on. Second is to really up our game on the, on the education side. Um, and I'm not just talking about supporting research in AI, I'm talking about how we teach AI and how we use AI in teaching, because it's going to be there. It's going to be helping students, it's going to become part of the classroom. Um, and we need to do that in a guided fashion and realize what we're about to do. And then finally, the issues of accountability, uh, understanding what we're going to do to workforces, what jobs mean in the future, um, and really providing some good legal, uh, legal um, that's what I'm looking for, um, a, a sort of bedrock of uh, legal uh, enforceability around protection of intellectual property, copyright, those kind of issues, as well as things like workers' rights uh, and the changes in those, uh, you know, that's going to be forced by um, the impact of AI over the coming years. I think I'll pause for breath there and hand back to Kevin. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that for all of the sci-fi hype that we've had, all of you have been quite grounded in the fact that there are, this is already happening, there are already impacts, but we've also got a lot of the tools that if we choose to use them, we might actually have a chance of regulating AI, which isn't what the narrative always seems to be. Um, given how many of you there are, um, I'm going to throw open two questions from the audience, blind loads of hands up already. A few things to bear in mind, I will try and take two to three at a time, wait for the microphone, do tell us who you are if you can, because do remember uh, that we are on the record, um, please do keep your questions short so we can get through as many as possible. Um, I'm going to start down here in the front, so I'll take a uh, lady in the front row and then the two gentlemen just behind, um, and I'll come to the rest of you. Good morning, my name is Anushka Sharma. I'm from Nort and the Space Academic Network. Um, I, with my consultancy business, spend on average 500 pounds a year using AI tools, happy to talk about which one's offline. Um, that can flex up by 100 pounds or not, based on the subscription models. And I look at my friends who've grown up with me in Southwest London in Tooting. When I show them these tools and they see that they get the trial version, it's free, they're hooked, they want to use them, they want to start businesses, they can't because there's a privilege of the cost that I can afford to pay that they can't. And again, that duality, Andrew and Anna, that you mentioned in the workplace and in schools and universities where some children have access to this technology and some don't. I've got academic colleagues who are asking if they can expense certain generative AI tools as part of their um, their work because it's something that they need to interface with. So is access to these tools becoming more um, of something that needs to go towards your organization that you work with? Um, but I'm mindful that these organizations are American companies. So again, Andrew, to your point, where do we where do we go? What what's the solution? Brilliant. Great question to kick off. Hello, Michael Dengo, Exilog Foundation. Um, uh, my question is, how much do we push AI 
two secondary schools because on one hand you want them to advance, you want them to uh, be at ahead of things, but will it short circuit their education and might have a damaging effect? Brilliant, thank you. Hi, Vincent Manancourt from Politico. Uh, the question is for Paul Scully. Um, is the are you is the government in favour of open source AI? And if it isn't, what are the the impacts on competition of limiting um, the companies that have these models? Brilliant, thank you. So we've got, um, I suppose, access to the digital divide, how much we should push to secondary schools. And perhaps if we start with that um, direct question to the Minister on open source. Well, I talked, we talked about AI uh, being many different things, and it depends on which area. I mean, you know, we're, what we're not going to do is um, sort of drive the market from government. And so the, there will be an... Um, there will be an element of, of, of both um, open source and uh, more closed proprietary te technology. The more open source it is, then actually comes back to the transparency, accountability um, principles. So, but, but there will be certain applications where proprietary model is more appropriate. Um, in terms of secondary schools, let me just cover that one and I'll leave others to do the cost of business. Look, I mean, it's, you know, I, I I was too young to remember log tables, but uh, yeah, you know, when you do maths, log tables, calculators, Excel, etc. Maths, for example, has developed through the world. And now some of the large language models in particular is going to change education even beyond that. But I think education itself needs to therefore change along that period of time. The way we learn, the way we are curious and creative thinking and asking asking the right questions. Um, will, will be how the, how secondary schools develop inevitably. There are there are ways of, of tackling cheating and those kind of things. More oral questions and, 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 and approaches in terms of testing, for for example. But if you look at um, uh, Kingston University, they've done this thing uh, a little while back about future skills report. When they great business school, they have about two thousand employees they work with. They surveyed surveyed them. This is not particularly AI relevant but there is then a, a, a bit about it that they asked them what those businesses wanted and it's all about creative thinking problem solving those kind of things and they changed their pedagogy based on their findings uh on that so it's to the point that off qual they were worried about how off qual were going to accredit them when you're looking at ai that i suspect um other universities are going to be looking at in that in that context as well and so off qual themselves will be having those problems about how they credit to the University of Surrey and other things as you are moving towards that model of this brave new world. Um, well, just building on that, um, I think that's, there's, there's a triple of very interesting questions there. Uh, the question of access and ensuring that this doesn't form another digital divide, mm. uh, that it doesn't disadvantage people is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and we're already seeing that schools that have access, don't have access, don't allow it, do allow it, and so on. So even there, you know, the university is about to inherit in a year's time a whole variety of different policies that have been, you know, if you like, put through by the, the, those school leavers that join the university, and they will be used or not used or have access according to whether their parents paid for it, whether the schools have paid for it. It's going to become a discriminator for universities. Um, you know, which universities offer ChatGPT uh, and other uh, large language models as part of your support for education, that's a cost to your university. Um, all of those kind of things will, you know, are in danger of creating further divides. Um, so that's really important. 
And I think Paul's point about sort of pedagogical changes is really important because um, we're only at the, the foothills of the Himalayas mm, of, mm. of how we're going to operate with AI in here. And at the moment, it's largely out unguided. We, we are exploring our way. You know, yes, we have policies, um, we have principles and so on that we're putting forward, but we don't know how that's going to work in six, 12 months' time and what mm. students will be doing and how the academics will be uh, responding to that. Um, I think AI in secondary schools, the point I'd make about that is you can't necessarily stop it because the students will use it regardless. It doesn't mm. matter what the teachers, what the schools say, you're not allowed to use this. It's pretty much impossible um, unless the student is, is really quite um, lazy about the way that they use AI to prove that, that they've used AI. And these AIs, the, the large languages are getting more and more capable. Uh, they're able to solve maths problems. They're able to write essays and so on in pretty much undetectable fashion. So the key there is to change the teaching style, which is a big, um, mm. you know, it's a, it's a big load on the uh, the educators who themselves are struggling to keep up with the topic, mm. uh, to be able to, as you say, be able to discuss topics, to, to critique topics, to teach critical thinking and so on, is a big change from, uh, you know, multiple choice questions, do you know this fact or not? Um, so we need to address that. We need support for educators to actually um, get on top of this top subject and to recognize that it's going to evolve and adapt uh, in the coming years. And um, as far as open source is concerned, open source is out there, it, it'll happen. There are very powerful, very capable open source models. Yes, there's good for transparency, um, and it's arguably better than having some proprietary dependence on US companies largely. Uh, but there are some downsides of um, open source models in that people find ways to misuse them. Um, and multiple concerns about fakery that's image that's uh, uh, impacting political discourse and so on um, are linked uh, or are being linked with uh, new forms of uh, generative AI so there are pros and cons and it's a finely balanced argument an argument that isn't going to have a clear winner uh, probably open source will come to dominate in years to come to um, add a couple of points. Um, first of all, on education, I want to highlight that in our new firm level survey, which is more than a thousand firms, um, there were very, I am simplifying it, there were some mediating factors, so do read it. But education um, was, you know, was correlated, was an innovation readiness factor that was that, that was linked with good, you know, a, a range of good, uh, good outcomes, and it must be seen in that way. Um, in terms of um, the the uh, education about the type of skills um, uh, that are used, um, in addition to um, what um, uh, what you said, uh, Andrew, um, thinking about what information and knowledge that young people uh, need in the same way that workers do to understand both the potential of the technology and the risks um, is going to be a hugely important is going to be a hugely important area. Brilliant, thanks, Anna. If we keep these questions and answers really short, we might get two more rounds. Um, I've got the lady three rows back there, uh, the lady on the end there, and I'll take uh, the gentleman at the back as well, standing up. Thanks very much. I'll stand up because I'm pretty short. Hi, I'm Sophie Dunroter from the Centre for Long-Term Resilience. And we look at a category of risks called extreme risks and very much see AI as something that could cause events like, uh, on the scale of, of, of something like COVID-19, if things aren't planned for and thought about now. Um, and I often think that there's a bit of 
um, unhelpful dichotomies created by people in terms of thinking about near-term risk versus future risks or ethics versus safety. And I, I think everyone in this room has the same goal that's overarching, which is the safe, responsible deployment and, and use of AI. And so I wondered whether the, the AI summit could be a bit of a reset where um, there is more independent expertise coming together to work on all the different aspects that, that, that are of concern. Um, and my question is, um, who, who who aren't we hearing from that we should be hearing from <coughs> at the panel? Which voices aren't as heard as, as you'd like them to be? Thank you. Brilliant. Uh, and then just the lady behind you. Hi, yeah. Thanks very much for an interesting uh, panel. Uh, my question is, uh, Megan Sagan from Global Council, sorry. Um, I was going to ask if uh, the panelists have views on whether we should be pursuing something that is more around kind of prohibiting or restricting certain use cases, or whether it should be about processing power, or actually, do neither of those work if you can design an AI system and then it gets used for something else entirely than what it was designed for? So I'd be interested to hear people's views on how you balance that. Great question, thank you. And the gentleman in the blue shirt, I feel like I'm on question time or something. <laughs> Standing up. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Dougie Brown, UK Music. Uh, in music, we've seen artists like Drake and The Weeknd have their voices mimicked by AI without their consent. We've seen a lack of transparency about what's being ingested into the AI systems um, without regard for copyright in music a lot of the time. Um, I guess any thoughts about what sort of guardrails need to be in place to ensure that human creativity is respected while AI continues to develop? Thank you. Fantastic. Three great, great questions. Mm. We've got um, a sensible discussion on risks and who we're not hearing from, um, how we might actually regulate whether it's use cases, processing power, and guardrails for creative industries. Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, on the last question, I, mean, I think copyright law is there, and we are seeing a lot of case law going through the courts. So uh, bring popcorn is my view, because I think these AI companies are going to get shafted. But, and you know, these are real people with rights. Uh, and uh, so there have definitely been some very blatant misuses there. Uh, uh, so I'm quite looking forward to that, frankly, uh, and more power to, to, to the rights holders. Um, on extreme risks, I, I think uh, you're right that there can be a dichotomy. At the same time, I think it's not entirely unhelpful to point to that because and I don't think the AI summit will be a reset because it's very focused on the existential extreme risk end. Now, number 10 says that's because they think all the other risks are covered elsewhere. Not so sure, which is why I have to keep making the point. In an ideal world, we'd think about both, as it were. And I recognise I'm less concerned about them, but I, ex I accept, you know, I I'm one view and that there are lots of different views. So we ought to, ought to be thinking about that. Uh, I think the question about restricting use cases really, that's a great question. And I think, you, again, you have to think about it kind of in area by area. I mean, for example, I just the thing that really scares me is drones and autonomous weapons mm, systems. Mm, mm. You know, which is, that's a completely different sort of set of areas. Uh, not not one where I have expertise, but there are certain things where I feel like, yeah, there ought to be a ban. Will, will we ever achieve that? Because I mean, there's lots you can do at domestic policy level, but you know, I mean, we can just see geopolitics is back, and I mean, it's very very difficult to see how we're going to do all of that. So yeah, th those are the bits that scare me. Yeah. Um. Look, in terms of. Uh uh, extreme uh, risk versus uh, more near risk. I think both of these are, are possible and it, they are covered in different uh, remits actually because um, you know you will see a lot of the area in Safety Summit talking about the more extreme risk that Hayden was talking about but also um, disinformation, misinformation, electoral, um, uh, especially we're already doing a lot of work on that. Um, but then you have 
other um, strands, like I talked about the Hiroshima process, when I was in Japan setting that up, um, that Japan have a, an issue with bias because of the large language models, there's way, way fewer data points for Jap- in Japanese. So just naturally, it's, it's going to disadvantage Japanese. And, and that's so, therefore, the English language is going, to, uh, is going to dominate. And so it's how you work through those kind, kind, kind of areas. So that's, that's what I mean about not being duplicative. We've got to make sure that each of those strands tackles that. And we, as, as the UK government, can bring together those things for UK for, for the UK bespoke response. There'll be an international response, and each country, in the same way, companies will have different approaches. Countries will have different approaches as well. So it's important we learn from that. Now, in terms of use, I totally agree with what I had said about dro- drones. You know, the use of chemical, we- you know, developing chemical weapons and those kind of things. It's uh, important that we do. Um, yeah, really seek those guardrails on, on use and use class. I think that is going to be um, really important in terms of processing power. I think that's going to be a difficult one to challenge because um, you know we're also looking at quantum computing, uh, which is really going to unlock a lot of um, even more important AI uses. The problem with quantum computing is that all those amazingly safe passwords that we have, you can crack um, some something that will take you forty two thousand years to crack would take you about five seconds. So that's the the stark nature of what's coming down the line with quantum. Um, copyright, yeah, like, I mean, uh, Dougie, in terms of UK music, we've got, uh, there's a lot of work. Um, when we started, really first started to come up this upslope about um, our increased interest in, in AI, I did some work with George Freeman, who's then in Bayes, and we got him to pull back on some of the work that was that was going on because we didn't really understand it, and it was looking as though we were sleepwalking into that situation that you described. But we got the uh, we're putting fifty million quid into the Creative Industries Clusters program. We've got Bridge AI as well to make sure that industries, including UK music, really understand the benefits of it, but also really tackling exactly those risks. First of all, on the on the on the reset point, yes, I think it's absolutely right that we need a reset. And one of the ways of thinking about aligning sort of near term and longer term uh, interests is to really focus at different levels, so to firm government, different tiers of government, um, on the need to sort of augment ultimately human capabilities in a way that will um, ensure that um, uh, that everyone is flourishing. Um, the um, uh, the other reset that we can do is perhaps to stop thinking of regulation or protection in a negative way and start thinking about the benefits to innovation um, and, and to productivity and longer term productivity that that could bring. Um, and another way perhaps to align those interests and bridge that gap between near and long term thinking um, is to forefront thinking about automation and work um, and, and the future of work. But perhaps I would say that um, in terms of in terms of uses, I think it's a really important point that we need to think about uses and impacts and perhaps one way of doing that um, is to is to think more closely about different types of impacts um, and applications um, but again do that through the design cycle so not just the end mm. but the very beginning of the innovation process from design onwards um, uh, just to exclusively think of risks gets into difficulties and we're seeing that in the EU at the moment and having come fresh from a conference called Lautomation in Madrid, you can see that that, that, it, that it has resulted in lots of tangles there and there's another reason why we should stick with our principles-based approach but operationalise it. Um, just to add to that, I, I, I really good comments from all my panellists, but um, in terms of extreme risks, um, I think the most ex- extant one is around um, truth. And mm. you, you touched on it with misinformation, disinformation. We're about to go into 
there can be a big election year over the next uh, 12, 18 months, what it is, not only in the UK, um, the US, and we will see um, technologies deployed uh, by unfriendly states uh, to confuse and uh, disrupt uh, the, the democratic process in our countries. And I think that's one area that we're going to see, we're going to be looking at and saying, how do we stop this? How do we put the genie back in the bottle? Uh, and that's that's an extant risk, because if you go the, the extreme on that and lose your, your, your focus, your understanding of what is truth, um, that is incredibly disruptive. Mm, 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 um, you know, it's not just politically, it's societally disruptive. Um, and I worry about that far more than I worry about killer robots. Killer robots need <laughs> yeah. to be worried yeah, about, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but um, yeah. we have more control over that. And I think the international consensus on this is really, really important. It's not something that we can do um, as an individual nation. It's something that we need to do. Uh, uh, the Hiroshima process, mm, for mm. example, is, is really valuable. And I hope that Bletchley will add to that. Um, in terms of where you get that expertise, well, I would say academia. Um, I would point out that, as I said earlier, academia has been somewhat outpaced by what's going on in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, when I look back 10 years, there was a paper published in Science about, 10, about two months ago that pointed out that big AI, the top big AI models, used to be 75% published by uh, academia 10 years ago. Now it's 4%. So the, the pendulum has swung enormously. Mm -hmm. it's, it's dominated by the Silicon Valley hyperscalers. Um, and we need to recognize that we can't win those battles. We need to understand where we can apply the brains we have in academia around talent, around uh, ethics, privacy, security, those things that will be otherwise market failures that we need to make sure that we've got a good stance on. Should we prohibit certain use cases? Yes, I think we should. Um, and the EU AI Act uh, specifically pro prohibits some applications. So, for example, direct manipulation of human beings, I think, is a, mm. is a, is a sensible, um, you know, that there are use cases that are relatively straightforward to implement technically that uh, you really don't want to let loose on the world. Uh, and we should be clear about that. Um, in terms of whether you could limit hardware, um, it's one lever that we could pull. The trouble is that most of those levers are then dominated by the US and China. And actually some of the US policies that are already implementing in terms of repatriating manufacture and understanding mm -hmm. of some technologies have just caused China to up their game and start manufacturing their own AI chips and so on. So it's not necessarily, uh, you know, there's, there's an element of whack-a-mole that you sort of squeeze one end and, and, and something else happens that doesn't necessarily work out for the best in the long run. And then finally, about the sort of copyright question, I mean, our own university has been doing um, some tireless work around uh, the pursuit of uh, getting uh, AI recognized on a patent application. We've gone around the world trying uh, with, a, with a patent application that has an AI as a co-inventor. Um, and that patent has been granted in a couple of countries in uh, South Africa and Australia. It has gone to the um, Supreme Court in the UK um, and on. The, the purpose of it is not to be vexatious and, and uh, upset copyright lawyers, but is to point out that our existing laws of copyright um, and uh, intellectual property are not sufficient for the age of intelligent machines. Um, a couple of yeses, um, if I may, just on China. Mm. Um, it's also right, I keep to say it, but then the, the, the regulation is also moving ahead, although that's not commonly known, including specifically in the workplace. Other PSs is that it is all it is about what is truth, but also looping back to the question about music and creative industries about what is creative, what is it, what mm. is what is it that we these regimes are trying to to protect, and that's big questions there. 
and a quick shout out for the Music UK manifesto, um, which begins to a first step to beginning to think about that. Um, but in terms of academia, there is a risk that it that 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 it's too slow in the same way that it's too slow to wait for cases to go through the courts. Um, so I think there'll be a new emphasis on sort of interdisciplinary academia, working at the interface with both policy and, and industry, um, so we can learn from that as we build up the regime. I'm really sorry that I'm going to have to um, end it then. Sorry to those of you who have questions that we can get time to get to. Um, some quick parish notices, first of all. The next uh, IFG event may be of interest to those of you in this room. It's happening at 1.15. It's with George Freeman, um, and it's about science, innovation, and economic growth. That's a quarter past one. Please do take a look uh, at the booklet for other IFG events. Uh, but before we go, three very big thank yous. First of all, to the Institute uh, for People-Centred AI at the University of Surrey for supporting yeah. today's event. Second, to all of you in the audience, some brilliant questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to more of them. And finally, please do join me in a huge round of applause for our brilliant panel this morning. <laughs>